This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go! Coming up on the show today, Thea Curdy will be here. Thea will discuss inclusive and accessible design when it comes to playgrounds. Lawrence Gunther, he's here to describe the effects of nuclear war on the planet. Turns out we're going a little dark with Lawrence Gunther on a Tuesday. That's a great way to come out of your long weekend. Just, you know, the effects of nuclear war on the planet. No biggie. That's okay, though, because later in the show, we're going to have a whole mess of fun with another edition of the Weekly News Quiz. Hearing people scramble and try to guess weird questions compiled by Paul Daniel guests on the quiz so far this year so thank you to everybody for being a part of that one and thank you to making time for making time to be with us today i want to thank mike ross for filling in for me late last week as i was very much under the weather did not realize how under the weather i was until i was told you're allowed to take a sick day and then i was very very sick for the majority of the long weekend but i'm feeling better today you may still hear the occasional sniffle or snuffle today so uh, please bear with me As I work my way through. But let's begin the show with our top story of the day. And we're beginning in the world of politics. The public public inquiry into the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act will begin this week. Brenda Molina Navidad has this primer. The inquiry will look into the decision-making of the Liberal government, which used the emergency declaration to grant extraordinary but temporary powers aimed at ending the nearly three weeks long blockades in Ottawa and at borders. Police and city officials described a state of lawlessness downtown, and people living in the area were increasingly frustrated with the noise and disruption of protesters with trucks blaring their horns day and night. Dozens of witnesses are expected to testify over six weeks of hearings, including Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino, and Finance Minister Christia Freeland. A final report will be filed to Parliament next year. Brenda Molina Navidad, The Canadian Press. Oof, and not to editorialize too heavily, just a couple minutes back into me being here at work. That's going to be a gong show, but an important gong show. There are really fundamental, important questions to ask about the use of the Emergencies Act, because we don't want governments using that willy-nilly, and we need to be asking tough questions to the government about its use. But I'm already worried about the amounts of political grandstanding and messaging that's going to be going on. Public inquiries should be honest assessments not political messaging and grandstanding. And I'm very, very concerned, even before it begins, about the grandstanding that will exist. Let's move over to the world of provincial politics, where the new leader of Alberta's United Conservative Party is to be sworn in today. Danielle Smith, the 19th Premier of Alberta, won the leadership race to replace Jason Kenney last week. Smith does not have a seat in the legislature, but announced over the weekend that she will run in a by-election in Brooks Medicine Hat. Now let's look to the impact of climate change around the world. Dozens of people are dead after Hurricane Julia drenched Colombia and cut across Central America. Jennifer King files this report. 
Former Hurricane Julia has dissipated, but is still drenching Guatemala and El Salvador with torrential rains. The National Hurricane Center says flash flooding and mudslides continue to be a threat in Central America and Southern Mexico. More than two dozen people have been reported dead due to the storm. The nation of El Salvador has declared a state of emergency. Police there say a man died when a tree fell on him and two other people died after heavy rains caused a wall of their home to collapse. The Rio Grande de San Miguel was a roaring torrent, and Channel 12 captured locals in San Miguel banding together to try to pull a car out of the muddy floodwaters. The storm damaged homes and ripped roofs off in Colombia. President Gustavo Petro flew over the peninsula of La Guajira on Monday and was pulled across a swollen creek on a float wrapped in plastic to visit communities still divided by floodwaters. I'm Jennifer King. Let's go across the ocean to Europe, where Italy has a new plan to deal with rising energy costs. Don't heat your home in the winter. Megan Williams has the story. New rules are on the way for heating with gas in Italy this winter with centrally heated buildings and private homes obliged to turn on the heat two weeks later than usual and off a week earlier in spring and to keep temperatures under 19 degrees Celsius or 66 Fahrenheit. The new restrictions will apply to all buildings except places of worship, nurseries, kindergartens and swimming pools. The energy-saving plan is aimed at tackling Europe's energy crisis after Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Authorities say they'll carry out spot checks to make sure the rules are followed. Megan Williams, ABC News, Rome. I probably should have put this next story before the last one, but let's go back to the world of geopolitics, where Sweden has conducted a probe into the leaks of the Nord Stream pipelines, but will not share the findings with Russia. Charles de Ledesma has the story. Magdalena Anson says in Sweden, the secrecy around preliminary investigations applies in this case. The blasts and ruptures had happened in international waters off Sweden's Baltic coastline, but within the country's exclusive economic zone. Russia has formally asked Sweden's government to be part of the investigation in a letter dated October 6. The nation's domestic security agency said last week its preliminary probe has strengthened the suspicions of serious sabotage as the cause of the blasts. Sweden's prosecutor in charge of the investigation says evidence at the site has been seized. I'm Charles de Ledesma. Let's go back to the impact of climate change, but a broader story. A new report says governments need to better prepare for severe heat waves. Rita Foley looks at the findings. The International Red Cross and the United Nations say the world has to do more to deal with dangerous heat waves that could take many lives in the future. A joint report says between the years 2010 and 2019, 38 heat waves led to the deaths of more than 70,000 people worldwide. The UN's Martin Griffith says heat waves account for some of the deadliest disasters on record. And he said things are only going to get far worse as climate change continues to spiral out of control. What can be done? Well, they point to tests of green roofs, cooling centers, emergency housing, and changes to school calendars to help control the impact of heat waves. I'm Rita Foley. One more story for you this morning. Now, last week, I was all over the Nobel Prize, at least for the three days that I was working. I shared the Nobel Prize for Medicine winner, the Nobel Prize for Physics winner, which I did not understand, the Nobel Prize for Chemistry, which I somewhat understood, But this is one that I think I understand today. And this is the last Nobel Prize mention. And then we can all move on with our lives and let the smart people continue to do their smart things. And us normies can do our normie stuff. Former U.S. Federal Reserve Chairman Ben Bernanke and two other U.S. economists have won the Nobel Prize for economic science for their research into the fallout from bank failures. Bernanke says he's proud to join the other two laureates. 
I'm very happy to be sharing this prize uh, with Douglas Diamond and Phil Divig, whose work on bank runs uh, was very uh, seminal, had a big impact on me uh, back in the early 80s when I was working on these issues. Co-winner Douglas Diamond says he's thrilled to be recognized for his research. Financial crises are like a big deal in the world, uh, and they're, you know, sort of maybe relevant in the, in, the, in, the, in the recent past and hopefully not the near future. So I wasn't shocked that the, this, this area got, got acknowledged, but I was, was happy and surprised. Let's uh, put that as a newspaper headline. Financial crises are like a big deal. Nice to know even Nobel laureates talk like L.A. Valley people. The prize comes with a cash award of nearly $900,000 U.S. It's good quiche. It pays to be smart. Let's get to our daily polls. At Accessible Media is where you find us on Twitter. At Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. On Friday, we asked you, what protein is your Thanksgiving meal preference? Oh, my gosh. I'm sad that I missed that one. Turkey was the big winner. Turns out turkeys can fly with 79% of the vote. Ham comes in at 7%. 4% of you said roast beef slash pork. And 10% of you said, bah, no meat. Who needs it? I'm somewhat inclined to agree with you. I was uh, too sick for any Thanksgiving festivities, so I ordered pancakes on Sunday. The very traditional Thanksgiving dinner of pancakes. Let's get to today's Daily Poll at Accessible Media. It's where you find us on on Twitter. Accessible Media Inc. is where you find us on Facebook. And, well, you just heard me mention that I was sick for days on end. So I'm curious, what makes you feel better when you're sick? And please write in with your favorite method of care. I'm going to be taking notes and uh, applying them to the next time that I get ill because we, we know these things are cyclical. They come for you. So is it rest? Did some of that. Is it tea? Love me some tea. Actually, I've not had a cup of coffee in seven days. Been all tea in the last seven days. So uh, maybe I've kicked my coffee addiction. Is it soup? Didn't do any of that. Or exercise? I actually did do a little bit of that. Get a little sweat in. It wasn't fever sweats. Let's go to Alex Smythe first on this one. Alex, you were dealing with a cold last week yourself. What makes you feel better? Yeah, uh, ironically, this was something I I had a chance to talk to the panel about, because as you mentioned, like you, I was dealing with a a cold half of of last week. You know, I was off the first half, you were off the second half. I think we had something similar. (laughs) We we didn't hang out together at any point, but we have the same cold. Yeah, we didn't hang out the weekend before, but maybe we went to the same bar or something and just whatever was in the air got us. Yeah, exactly. So um, my kind of typical go-to when I'm feeling sick, it's definitely I lean towards the soup and it has to be the Lipton's package chicken noodle soup, not a chicken like chicken noodle can soup. It has to be the package. <laughs> you add the water. There's no actual meter or anything. Something about that really works well for me. But the other thing I had mentioned too is diluted Gatorade Powerade with ice and lots of water. So oh, it's not overpowering, yeah. but you still get the electrolytes, you get the sugars, things like that. That helps me going. I'm not much of a tea guy. I do it every once in a while, but I, I'm still, you know, the coffee is, is my go-to, even though I know it doesn't help when you're sick, but it helped me wake up. So I'm actually quite shocked to hear you say you you haven't had coffee in like a week. I don't know how you do it. 
Um, you know, the, the tea can only take you so far, Dave. Alex, I'm actually wondering if the fact that I was getting the sweats on Friday had something to do with the fact that I hadn't had coffee in two days, that my body was like, <laughs> oh, you think you're sick? Yeah. Well, I'm going to give you a little bit of withdrawal symptom <laughs> as well. How do you feel about that, brown bear? Yeah, exactly. You know, you not only it's like, oh, you're dealing with just feeling unwell. You got the fever, the aches, the pains, the, the head cold. And then, yeah, oh, you're not going to have caffeine? Well, screw you. Yeah. Have a headache, have the sweat, <laughs> have some jitteriness. Yeah. Yeah. How about all the other things you used to cope with daily life you can't have while you're sick? So yeah. therefore, uh, you're going to miss all those these things. Uh, let's bring in Eliza Rocco to this conversation. Eliza, the theme of this is that pretty much everybody around here was battling some kind of cold before I got sick. No, I'm not blaming you for making me <laughs> sick. But I am curious what your method of self-care is when you are sick. Well... I wish I could have exercised. That sounds so great to me right now, but I would just end up as just this sweaty, snotty coffee mess. Like I, mean, that. I, I was already there. I was already there, so it didn't, it didn't change yeah. anything. Um, so out of these options, I have to say, I think the most important one is rest. You can drink all, this, all the tea, all the soup you want, but if you're not giving your body the rest it needs, it's going to take you so, so much longer to get healthy. Although I do, I do love some tea. I will say. Yeah, that, that's well said. That's well put. Ultimately, rest is rest is key. And I'm grateful and thankful that people like Mike was were able to fill in for me last week and that our bosses, Paula and Kara, were like, no, no, you're, you're taking sick days. You're, you're taking a couple <laughs> days off. I hadn't taken an actual sick day since 2019, oh which is like staggering. Uh, although, as I pointed out to you, as I was explaining that to you earlier today, I uh, took six months off in 2019 uh, for surgeries. So, you know, I hadn't taken a, a sick day in years, but that's because I took so many in 2019 that I had to make up for lost time. Uh, Eliza, thank you for this. We'll catch up with you a little bit later in the show. For now, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. Let's go back to Alex Smythe. Alex has the national weather updates. Here is your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. Starting in St. John's, Newfoundland, it's a mix of sunny clouds with a chance of showers and a high of 14. In Halifax, Nova Scotia, the clouds are clearing up for some sunshine with 15 as the high. Over in Montreal, Quebec, it's mainly sunny and a high of 17. Over in Ottawa, Ontario, it's sunny as well with 18 being the high. In Toronto, Ontario, it's sunny and a high of 21. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, it's sunny as well, but it's turning to a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon with a chance of rain, so watch out for that. And the high is 20. Over in Winnipeg, Manitoba, it's mainly sunny, but again, a mix of sun and clouds this afternoon and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour. And the high there is also 20. In, Saskatch in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with a chance of rain this morning, but then it's turning to a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour and the high is 13. In Calgary, Alberta, clouds clearing up this morning for the sun and 13 is the high. Up in Edmonton, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds with wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and 13 is a high there as well. Over to Yellowknife Northwest Territories, it's not a beautiful day. It's rain, and then it's changing to snow this morning with up to two centimeters expected 
and wing gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour. Oh my gosh. With the high being only one. Yeah, it's not a great day over in uh, Yellowknife. It's truly to start a winter there, Dave. That's fair. It's mid-October, which means in Yellowknife in the territories, it's going to be cold. But we're starting to use words like accumulation. That means winter is here. Exactly. But thankfully, Vancouver and Victoria both having beautiful days. So Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny and a high of 18. And then finally in Victoria, BC, it's sunny as well, but the high is 16. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. Coming up next, we'll talk about accessible and inclusive playgrounds. Thea Curdy will discuss how the building codes and inclusive design play into that. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. Parks and playgrounds are supposed to be places where people can be carefree and have fun. However, so many playgrounds are not inclusive, and that leaves many people with disabilities on the sidelines. So what goes into making a playground inclusive? Let's find out with the president of Designable Environments, Thea Curdy. Hey, good morning, Thea. Great to chat with you once again. Good morning, Dave. So, Thea, I think we have an understanding of why play spaces are so important for children when they're developing. But why specifically is having accessible play space important? Well, first, I'll I'll start by saying happy National Disability Employment Awareness Mm -hmm. Month. Um, I know you've been talking a lot about that. uh, And we did last year, and that segment's on our website if people are interested in hearing more about accessible office spaces. Um, But as it's now later in the fall season, it might seem like an odd time to be talking about playgrounds, but if you're a school or community, you're probably planning to be starting to update your playground for next summer. So that planning happens starting from the fall and through the winter. So it's a great time for those people. So I thought it would be a good thing to bring up. Um, As you know, I've been working in accessibility in the built environment for over 20 years now. And I think I've mentioned several times, I have two passion projects, one of which being accessible housing, which we've talked about on several times, and the second being play spaces. Um, uh, I've done many presentations about this as well. And um, one of the things that came out or I learned in in doing research for this is that um, uh, back in 2018, there was a survey that 92% of Canadians agree that accessibility for people with disabilities is a basic human right. But still our playgrounds across the country continue to leave kids, um, little kids with disabilities on the sidelines, as you said, um, but also parents with disabilities or older people. Uh, Children with disabilities also at a higher risk of social isolation are often excluded from play because the playgrounds are not accessible and spend more time alone watching television and playing on their computers instead. In fact, 53% of kids who have disabilities apparently have zero or only one close friend, which is terrible. And that's from a report from Holland Blue Review Kids Rehabilitation Hospital. So play is a critical part of learning. We know that play-based learning is a big part of what we do. We spend so much money on early years uh, planning, uh, trying to help kids get started on the right thing. 
uh, foot and play-based learning is a big part of that. You get to play, have fun, but you're also learning risks. You're learning social skills uh, and experiences with you know, consequences that are may maybe not too dire. So accessible play spaces, whether indoors or outdoors, ensure that kids can play with their peers in an equal and fun environment. Theo, one of the reasons why we always appreciate your expertise in all of these conversations is that you do the dirty work here. You go into the code. You look into the building codes and educate us. So what does the building code and other accessibility leg legislation currently require for play spaces? Yeah, I always keep in mind that our listeners might be people who are involved or trying actively to help improve accessibility, uh, particularly because our building codes are so in, in, insufficient, if they suck. <laughs> uh, so I know a lot of people in the disabled community are really trying to, you know, pitch in, but they don't know what they, you know, what's in the law, what's out of the law. They, they don't know where the resources are. So this is part of the reason why I love doing this show with you and I appreciate doing it. Um, so unfortunately, from a play spaces and playgrounds perspective, there's really nothing specific in the national or provincial building codes themselves, um, which is part of the problem. Uh, and without those specific requirements, then manufacturers don't know what they have to be building to create a product that people will be buying. Uh, so they're going on, you know, what they know are best practices. Designers might have guidelines um, and again, best practices to work from, but there's no training. Um, that we're still suffering because our post-secondary education is not uh, training uh, people who are doing industrial design and create the products. Um, the landscape architects, the interior design architects, and the uh, architects themselves um, to think about, uh, but even the policymakers and, the, and people who run municipalities don't, don't know what an accessible playground means. Um, and because playgrounds are not accessible by default, even places you'd expect or hope to have accessible playgrounds like schools or hospitals, et cetera, uh, still don't have them. Um, and as I mentioned before, of course, outdoor playgrounds is one place, but uh, you know, here in Canada, many outdoor playgrounds are not usable in late fall, winter, and early spring. So uh, for almost the last 20 years, we started to see interior play spaces popping up that parents will take their kids to to run around and play, burn off some of that energy um, if the snow or ice or uh, just whether it's too bad to do it. And that's a great place for accessibility for all of those reasons for kids with disabilities. And yet because they're uh, private and because there's no legislation, they're not accessible. So what we see in Ontario is um, Ontario passed the first uh, Provincial Accessibility uh, Act called the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act back in 2005 with the goal of making Ontario accessible by 2025. But the only standard that built with the built, deals with the built environment is the design of public spaces, which came out in 2013 and hasn't been updated since. It is being updated now. I'm not sure what that's going to include. But right now, the, the playground section just says that you have to consult with people with disabilities. Now, I think what that meant was that they thought that they were going to be getting local grassroots solutions to the local needs. But unfortunately, municipalities were not given money to be holding consultations with people with disabilities. So what often sadly happened is that they decided to do one consultation once and then take those recommendations as guidelines. Yeah. So they're not requirements. And even where they have accessibility advisory groups, I was sitting in on a meeting recently uh, where the accessibility advisory group was presented with a new playground that had already been designed. And then they were asked for feedback and you could just feel the frustration in the room. How come you didn't talk to us before you designed anything? And then there's just so many barriers here. It's hard to know where to begin was a part of the feedback that I heard. 
And then what's happening with the feedback that we gave you from the last playground? Right. You know, there's <laughs> right. to be no continuous learning that's happening. So the process is kind of broken right from the legislation all the way through. We're not getting the nothing about us without us really understanding it. We're not getting the inclusive from the start to make sure that we're not trying to fix something that's inherently inaccessible. Yeah. Um, and we can't keep making the same mistakes of the past just because it's a different size or a different cost. Yes, it costs less to discriminate against people, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We can't afford to be making these same mistakes. Thea, I oftentimes think about that when you when you have someone saying, uh, usually a city representative or a, a recreation department representative, saying like, oh, well, you know, one parent who has a kid with a disability told us the kid likes this, so therefore our playground is now accessible. And it's like... No, that's not <laughs> that's not how you make policy. One anecdote is not how you frame good policy. You need multiple anecdotes, but as you say, ultimately you need standards. And I think it was contained a little bit in that last answer, Thea, but why are we still seeing so few accessible playgrounds? Uh, well, I think the the real answer is that unfortunately, we're not uh, we still have the um, non-disabled as the gatekeepers deciding what's appropriate, what the budget should be. Um, they're working from old play group, uh, playbooks uh, about what's, what's reasonable, uh, what does a play space look like. Um, so the biggest barriers uh, tend to be that we're uh, talking about bias and ableism. You know? uh, it, often we're also looking at if they are going to consider accessibility, as you said, it's anecdotal. Um, uh, often parents with uh, kids with disabilities or disabled parents will say, "Don't I don't know what makes an accessible playground, but I can tell you what's not working. So looking to them versus looking to the design community, and as I said earlier, if we don't fix it in education, like, like how do we expect it to happen? Right? Yeah, like, yeah. There's too many people who think they know, but do they really know? Um, and they're not understand what people really aren't understanding is that 40 years ago, we can change the Canadian charter to say people with disabilities are equal and the human rights code to say that disabled uh, or spaces shall not discriminate against, uh, people. And that should of course include playgrounds, which are really are hubbed for our communities. Um, and unfortunately, as I said, the current standard practices don't help us. So there are good news. There is an, um, a playground directories where you can find accessible playgrounds in your community. So it's not completely lost. Um, I did find um, a, a website called accessibleplayground.net. Um, and I don't know how up to date it is because you have to like personally list it. So if you can go and list your local playground, that would be great. But like, for example, Quinn's Place at Paradise Elementary in Paradise, Newfoundland apparently has an accessible playground. The Westmount Inclusive Playground in Nova Scotia, um, or Halifax, Nova Scotia. And then of course here in Mississauga, uh, we have the Zonka Park. But there's so many across the country. But again, without standards, what's defined as accessible in one place, which is often wheelchair, not thinking about kids who are blind or have vision loss, not thinking about kids who are deaf or deafened or hard of hearing, not thinking about kids with environmental sensitivities or their parents and caregivers. So the latest resource we have is an inclusive playgrounds playbook, 
which was um, developed by my friend Tim Ross, who I'm working with on a really cool urban planning project, which I can't wait to talk to you about another time. <laughs> uh, but uh, Tim Ross worked with a few other people from the uh, University of Toronto and uh, an inclusive uh, design service and the University of Alberta uh, with Holland Bloorview to create this brand new inclusive playground where they reviewed, I think, like 120 different uh, playground standards and best practices from Canada and around the world. So it's really the latest and greatest. And again, I'll be posting that on social media for people who uh, would like to be looking more about that. Thea, as always, we're running a little bit over time here, but I do want to make sure that we're ending on these positive notes or these fun notes or at least solutions focused ideas. So give me a couple of the top ideas about making a play space usable and fun beyond the minimum design standard. Right. Okay. So instead of making trying to say this is a traditional playground and trying to fix it for accessibility, you got to start thinking from the ground up. You got to start like right from the beginning thinking, right, instead of building all these ramps and platforms and things, what can we do on the ground to make it more playful and easier for everybody, parents, grandparents, caregivers? Uh, you know, play is about exercise as well, and everybody needs exercise. Uh, it's not about having an ASL alphabet on the ground floor, uh, but maybe having something more interactive like a tic-tac-toe game. Uh, if, if you have sandboxes, if they're down on the ground, that's hard for people to get to. Kids get, you know, sand in their shoes and everything. So elevate them. If you put them on an elevated uh, sandbox, then kids uh, with wheelchairs or parents can wheel right up and play at a, a height. People who can't bend over can play at a height. Uh, and of course, the sand tends to stay in the sandbox. And you don't have to worry about maybe some things being buried in the sand that you don't want there. Um, <laughs> Uh, or the sand spreading around as much. Uh, you can add things like drums, chimes, and bells. Uh, there's something called generational swings, which I just posted uh, yesterday um, on our social media to show that you can have an adult on one side and a baby swing on the other, so you yes. can be facing each other to swing rather than just standing behind your kid pushing them all day. I'm tired, leave me alone. <laughs> uh, sensory gardens for kids with uh, you know, autism are, are great. Uh, standalone features where people can get away and just sort of swing maybe a little bit by themselves. Uh, wheelchair users, you don't have to transfer on to swings, although that's great if you can, uh, but having a roll-on swing would be great as well. And then thinking about drinking fountains, parking, uh, it's, uh, shaded rest areas, tactile treasure hunts, uh, canoe boats that have the side cut out so that you don't have to climb over the edge to pretend that you're canoeing, but you can roll right in. Uh, there's so many great ideas out there. It's, it's just a lack of uh, thinking and creativity that's really holding us back, I think. Thea, it always amazes me how many people will reach out to me as we're planning interviews or segments and saying, oh my gosh, you have Thea Curdy on your show. She's amazing. I think one of the reasons why people love you and know you as well as they do is because you are super present in the community and you're always highlighting interesting events for people to attend or take information from. So any interesting upcoming events that you want to highlight? Well, this afternoon I'm doing another presentation on accessibility for places on uh, National Disability Employment Awareness Month for Infrastructure Canada, um, but it may be too late to uh, register for that. So otherwise, if you're interested in learning about that, on Wednesday, October 17th, there's another virtual panel discussion, which I'm not going to be a part of, um, but it's organized by Diversibility, and I'll be posting a link to that on social media after, at T-K-U-R-D-I on Twitter, but also on LinkedIn and Facebook. Uh, Tuesday, October 18th, there's a cooperative 
co-op uh, or sorry Queen's Park reception happening here in Ontario um, and they're having something it's a reception and a lobby day about co-op week so that's about accessible housing and co-ops and then finally uh, the A11YTO folks are having their conference on October 17th and 18th and this is all about digital accessibility um, and uh, games and stuff so it's really fun and again there's a website uh, to help people register. My goodness, Thea, I don't know when you sleep, but we're so grateful that you make time for us every month, and we'll talk to you again in a couple weeks. So fun to be here. Thanks, Dave. That's Thea Curdy, the president of Designable Environments. Coming up next, we're getting a little dark here. That's okay, though. We'll mentally prepare ourselves. Lawrence Gunther is going to describe the effects of nuclear war on the planet. Just a little light, little light segment on a Tuesday. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. According to a study published by Louisiana State University, go Tigers! A nuclear war would devastate all of Earth's ocean and land with some effects lasting for thousands of years. Joining me for this very light conversation is Lawrence Gunther. Hey, good morning, Lawrence. How are you? Dave, I'm doing well. I hope you had a good Thanksgiving, sir. I was a bit under the weather, so I spent mine oh. in uh, isolation, getting lots of takeout. So you know what? Oh, I uh, it, It's actually not that different from a usual weekend in my life. So we live. Yeah. We live. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Lawrence. Oh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> let's, let's jump into this study. Uh, just light reading. Light reading material for you as you were yeah. going through it. What was your immediate takeaway? Well, I mean, the findings of the study are probably no surprise to anybody, but they're surprisingly stark. You know, it's not not good news, Dave. Like, they're basically saying that if there's a nuclear sort of war between two countries, whether it's, you know, Russia and NATO or India and Pakistan, I mean, there's nine countries out there that have uh, nuclear weapons. If they, if they start tossing bombs at each other, we're all going to be impacted. We're all going to suffer. We're all going to pay the price on this. And it's not a short-term thing. It's not something we're going to bounce back easily. Yeah, that, that's one of the things that has hung over the conflict in, in, in Ukraine is that is that the possibility, the saber-rattling of nuclear weapons is certainly one that at times is maybe overstated, but it hangs over the whole thing. It, it's, it's a scary situation. You mentioned yeah. a couple countries there, Lawrence. Let's try and do this together because I think off the top of my head, I can name the majority of them. Then you got to fill me in on the people, <laughs> the people who I miss here. So U.S., Russia, England, Britain. India, Pakistan, Israel, who am I missing? China, North Korea, to name two more. So uh, Iran as well. I mean, Iran's on the cusp if they haven't already got them. Israel, you named Israel. That's, that's pretty much it. There's nine countries and 13,000 uh, uh, nuclear weapons. And uh, like Russia has the most at around 6,500. United States comes in a close second at 5,500. China's the third place with only 350. So then it drops way off, right? But these numbers are misleading in a sense, Dave, because they don't paint an accurate picture of the type of nuclear bombs or how these nuclear bombs have evolved over the years. I mean, it used to be, you know, we all know about Hiroshima, the, the bomb that was... Uh, you know, dropped over Nagasaki and Hiroshima, those two bombs in Japan to end the Second World War. And, and they were a different type of bomb. They exploded in the air and, and shot down. And um, 
and after the, those bombs went off, they were very destructive. They, you know, they were city bombs kind of thing to blow up a city, and they caused a lot of destruction, but not a, long, a lot of long-term radioactive damage. And amazingly enough, it dissipated quite quickly. But the bombs that were then constructed, like the United States made one that was 700 times bigger than that in 1952, detonated that on a South Pacific island, and, and that one shot up into the atmosphere 25 kilometers, 25 miles into the atmosphere, a hundred mile wide uh, bloom of the mushroom. So that's a, that's a huge amount of fire shooting up and spreading out. You know, it just it impressed on everybody because we saw it. We saw pictures of it in 1952. And we realized, boy, this is, this is humongous. This went way up into the upper atmosphere. Russia came back a few years later and they detonated one that was 3,000 times bigger than the ones dropped on Japan. So you can imagine how big those were. But these these type of city buster bombs, you know, what they called, you know, we'll send a missile halfway around the world and blow up your capital city and you'll blow up our capital city. That was the Cold War. That's what we lived through in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, right up until the uh, 1990 when the USSR sort of collapsed. But what was going on in the background was the creation of all these small sort of tactical what they call tactical uh, warheads. And that's what we're talking about now. Mm. So let's come back to the study. What does it conclude in regards to the impact on the world? Well, it, 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 the impact is related to these small tactical weapons. These are the weapons that are fired out of cannons, they're dropped out of helicopters. There's the size of a, a, a lunch bucket, the size of a, a, a football Right? They can be shot out of cannons. And, and, but when they detonate, they detonate on the ground. And when they detonate on the ground, they throw up a big cloud of now radioactive dust into the atmosphere. And, and if you remember Chernobyl, when that uh, nuclear power plant blew, mm. it threw up a cloud of dust that drifted west, northwest, and, and over um, Finland and Sweden and Norway. And uh, that that left an effect that lasted five years from one you know one power plant exploding. You can imagine a bunch of these tactical weapons exploding and throwing up clouds of dust. These clouds of dust will go up into the atmosphere. They'll be spread around by the winds, you know, the west wind and whatever. They'll circle the earth. We see this with volcanoes when we hear about volcanoes erupting and how the dust from these volcanoes circles over other countries, crosses oceans, causes the sun to be blotted out, causes air traffic to stop because they can't fly planes through dust because it'll clog the engines. Uh, once we lose the sun, Dave, uh, the sun rays, crops will begin to fail. Mm. The, uh, the food chain and the ocean will begin to fail. Our oceans will become sterile places. Uh, once the uh, sun is blocked, it, the temperature will drop an average of maybe seven degrees Celsius, but that's enough to trigger another ice age. If you think yeah, about the last yeah. ice age, right, 10,000 10, years ago, the temperature did not drop seven degrees Celsius on average around the globe to trigger that ice age 10,000 years ago. So this would trigger another ice age that we would have very difficult time living through. Lawrence, this may sound a little bit morbid, but I mentioned there's been saber rattling in regards to the international conflict in Ukraine right now. What kind of wake up call is that to governments, but also folks like you and me about being better prepared for these kinds of events that go beyond uh, the Cold War days of, oh, hide under your desk? Yeah, hide on your desk. Don't talk about it. It's, you know, we would all be evaporated, poof, like like what happened in Japan. It would just be shadows left on the pavement. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking a long, prolonged 
collapse of the food chain and everything we know, it would be a very slow and horrific, painful loss of life with lots of turmoil, lots of uh, rioting, lots of fighting for resources, limited resources. You know, this is the stuff that they make dystopian sci-fi out of, right? The the, the books and, and things we watch on movies and such. Yeah, yeah. But we need to we need to recognize that. I think we need to understand that this is this is what we're talking about and we're not talking about it. You and I are talking about it now, but you know, it, the conversation seems to be right now in the media, you know, there would be a, a potential nuclear war with tactical nuclear weapons. And and, ooh, <laughs> and end of sentence end of sentence end of reports. All right, moving and, on. Ex- Let's go to sports with John. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It sounds like okay, it'd be a thunderstorm, you know, and it'll it'll pass, right? That's the kind of coverage we're giving it. It's not that at all. Yeah, it's it's a delicate balance, right? Because you don't want to get into the fear-mongering side of it, but you, you, in a certain degree, need to be giving people some kind of usable information. Like there could be some kind of reports or PSA or small commercial about things that you could do beyond sort of saying, ah, nuclear war, what are you going to do? Uh, Lawrence, out of yeah. pure curiosity, uh, there's a very notable piece of history not far from you in the Ottawa area in CARP, the Diefenbunker, which was built during the Cold war as a place of refuge in case of a nuclear explosion yeah. it's open to the public have you ever visited i have dave i've i've gotten lost a little bit down in there the, your gps just doesn't work down there i'll let <laughs> yeah. you know right now <laughs> it's it's incredible uh, they gave me uh they gave us access for a behind the tour uh, behind the scenes tour uh for yeah. an AMI, ami this week episode back in 2015 in fact i wonder if like it's almost worth revisiting again because it was that cool and that immersive it's like very powerful at times but just to, to sort of think about that context but a lot of the technology they were messing around with in the 1950s it's really interesting stuff it is, David. It's like walking into a science fiction movie from the 1960s and 70s, only you get to touch all the props, right? And yeah. now you're part of the movie because you're you're living it. You're 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 lying down on the bunks. You're you're feeling the doors and the, and how thick they are, the metal doors and all of that, and 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 how cramped the quarters are. I mean, this is where the ministers uh, of state were supposed to live. The prime minister, who at the time actually said he he wouldn't take go down there because yeah, they were yeah. none of them were allowed to bring their families so uh, because of limited space so so he said no i'm not going i'll stay with my family but but you know that whole underground bunker that that's you know the the city bombs the the city buster bombs quickly rendered that whole underground bunker thing useless it wouldn't yeah. last right and once these one of these giant russian bombs landed on it but, Dave, you know, we got rid of most of those uh, big city buster bombs when the USSR collapsed. But what we didn't get rid of was these little tiny tactical weapons. It, after the USSR collapsed, uh, the EU got rid of those small tactical weapons. They only have 100 because they, they feel like they could be easily stolen and used against them. Yeah. Because they're so yeah, small. Yeah. But was- Russia has Russia has 2,000 of them. At a certain point, you only you only need so many to cause mm-hmm. significant damage that, yeah. as you point out, could really be detrimental to the world. Uh, one more thought here about the Diefenbunker, Lawrence. What I really yeah. observed about sort of the 1950s and 60s culture that exists down there, an ashtray in front of every chair. Because uh, <laughs> even in times of a nuclear war, you must still have a dart or two. Uh, Lawrence, let's get to Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, your show yeah. on AMI-audio. What's coming up on the next episode?
Wow, we just had the Hunter's Moon on Thanksgiving weekend. So we talk about what is a Hunter's Moon and how does that look? You know, so we have a description on that with Miss Lily. And then uh, we're talking about cold water swimming. And I'm not talking, you know, the polar dip, you know, plunge, get out, <laughs> scream and hop around. These are people that willingly go swimming in cold water every day and do not make a lot of sound about it, right? They just quietly go about their business. And uh, some live recording from our our last camping trip of the season. Oh my gosh, Lawrence. I always love listening to the show. Thank you for making some time for us today. I know the topic was a bit dark, but as you say, yeah. an important one to visit. So I'm glad that you and I could uh, ride shotgun on that one. Thanks, Dave. I appreciate you giving me the time and uh, and and thought and uh, conversation on this, man. It's good. That's Lawrence Gunther. He's the host of Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther, which you can find Sundays at 3 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio, or you can find it on your favorite podcasting platform. Coming up next, Shiny Saravana Muthu will look ahead to this year's Elegant Wedding Bridal Showcase in Montreal. A little wedding planning with Shiny Saravana Muthu. I'm noticing a theme. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's a Tuesday edition of Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's catch up with community reporter Shiny Saravanamuthu in Montreal. Hey, good morning, Shiny. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Shiny. Last time we spoke, we talked about how you got engaged and how wedding planning is underway. Well, lucky for you, the Elegant Wedding Bridal Showcase is coming to Montreal. Uh, this could mean a lot of things. So what is the showcase putting on display? So this is a great thing, and that's something that Montreal's been missing for the last two years. Mind you, weddings were a little down low also. <laughs> uh, this is the first time that it's come back since COVID made its appearance, so it's exciting. And I'm glad it's happening now, and I didn't miss it for this year. Um, so it's basically a huge event space that they rent out, and they have multiple multiple vendors that you can think of for anything related to weddings. And this is a great way for you, like if you're having trouble getting contact with the vendor, hence if they're busy, this you'll be face-to-face, -face, you'll be able to talk to them. You can sample some of it, if it's like a cake, you can sample some of their stuff there. You can see their photography skills. Uh, if you're looking into a photo booth, you can actually try the photo booth while you're there. It's really hands-on for you to see if it's something you, that you even like or would want at your wedding. And a perk is you, each vendor usually has a raffle that day. So every time you visit a booth, you can enter in your name and you have a chance to win something. So you might even be able to get something that you wanted to have but didn't want to spend the money on, but for free if you win. Shiny, wedding planning is a year-round activity, but these yeah. kinds of events do bring a lot of people together. You used the word hands-on before. I'm curious about how much the expression and use of hands-on becomes a really valuable experience, one of the benefits of attending an event like this. Yeah, I think especially like, take for instance, like picking out linens for your tablecloth. You really want to, like you can see them in the picture, but you won't really know what they feel like. And you want to know, now that I know, like linens cost like an armor, like two, depending on the material. So you really want to see what you're getting for, for your money's worth. There are some boutiques there that are for wedding dresses. So you could feel the fabric and all that stuff. It just, there's a lot of customization when it comes to wedding planning and you wouldn't think there would be, but there is. So I think it's really important to meet these people like face to face. And at this point it's from 11 AM to 5 PM. So I'm basically scheduling my entire day off for that day <laughs> to really like maximize it because some of these vendors are really hard to make appointments with, mm. especially 
because like wedding season is kind of slowing down and also in the winter you might not want to get out and like travel so this is kind of a great time for you to go meet people or maybe you already have a quote from someone and you're still shopping around until you want to confirm something this can also be helpful for to see if the quote you presently have is actually good for you or if there's better out there or cheaper or a better alternative for what you're looking for november the 6th from 11 a.m to 5 p.m it's in old montreal at 200 de la commune in uh, old Montreal. So you can go to the bridal show and then go to Gibby's for dinner for a nice steak, for a nice <laughs> steak and a good side. Although maybe shiny might actually eat healthier than I do. So maybe somewhere <laughs> nice for some seafood or something for shiny, uh, shiny. I I'm one of these suckers that as well, not suckers. I'm just one of these individuals who, especially when it comes to things like, as you say, tactile things, clothes, tablecloths, uh. I need to touch them before I'm going to buy them. I need to know what that material's like. Yeah, and I feel like especially with us having one less sense, I feel like touch and smell become so important in our life that I'm very like I need to feel things, I need to know how things smell. So like especially with those kinds of things, you want to make sure, especially if they were to tell you it's $2 for tablecloth, you want to know what kind of material you're play, paying for. If it's like the dollar store material, you'd rather go get it from the dollar store. <laughs> you know what I mean? So yeah. like you really want to know what you're getting. So I think that's why it's so important to meet these people, see what you're getting, see the quality of things, and then compare between vendors because wedding planning is all basically comparing each quote from one another. Right. And you want to know what you're getting. So. Well, Shani, I'm sure between now and next year, you and I are going to talk a lot about wedding stuff, and I'm actually really excited to do it. I'm happy to be coming along the journey with you, but let's pivot <laughs> over to a different story here. And this one is also in that multi-sensory vein. You want to talk about Le Centre de Jardin Balbe. So why did this garden recently catch your attention? Because they have a Christmas market that's starting on Monday. Oh, and come I'm just on. like, okay, it's October. Huh. It's not too cold outside. And I can actually enjoy myself and not freeze. And I, I'm one of those people that starts Christmas before Halloween is even over. So this is great. And because I've already like looked out some stuff that I want to buy for Christmas, but I want to go look at this Christmas market before I go splurge somewhere else at a big commercial box place. So yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Shiny, I always I always try to live by this philosophy that people can like what they like. For example, I watch too much football. I spent seven hours yesterday playing Warcraft 2, the game from 1996. <laughs> so I am far from anyone to judge anything about the things they like. But I find <laughs> it so funny that we're always kind of hitting fast forward on things, right? The pumpkin mm-hmm. spice lattes came out two weeks before Labor Day, you know, weeks before pumpkin was even in bloom. And now we're getting Christmas markets in mid-October you know kind of a month early but i think there's something to that right let people like what they like and if they want to do it early let them do it early i always feel like christmas is like gone in a blink of an eye so the fact that it's coming in october i feel like i can like prolong my like christmas spirit and just have more fun with it and my house can look like it threw up christmas much earlier (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's so good. Well, Shani, I'm going to give the details here. So this one, as you mentioned, is coming up. It's October the 17th. It's Monday to Saturday from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. and Sunday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Centre Jardin Balbe, which is 424 Rue Boileau, excuse me, yeah, Boileau in Saint-Eustache, Quebec. And we'll share all that information, the contact info on the website after the show, ami.ca slash now, ami.ca slash now. Hey, Shiny, we got to get out of here, but thank you so much for making time for us today. And we'll talk to you again in a couple of weeks. That's good. Take care. That's Shiny Servanamuthu, community reporter in Montreal, Quebec. And remember, you can always find more coming up on our blog, coming up on the show after the show on the blog, ami.ca slash now. Let's wrap up the hour with a couple of news stories. 
Let's actually skip ahead here, Eliza, in the script. Forget the Derek Dennis story about the U.S. airports. No one cares about the U.S. airports. We're in, we're in Canada. Gosh darn it. But what we do care about is pumpkins. It's pumpkin season. And uh, yesterday was a big day in the world of gourds. A Minnesota horticulture teacher's 35-hour drive to Northern California with his 1,161-kilogram pumpkin in tow was worth it. Travis Ginger set a new American record for the heaviest pumpkin and winning the 49th World Championship Pumpkin way off in Half Moon Bay. Here's the announcement at the event. 2,560 pounds times nine bucks a pound. Travis, you got gas money. $23,040. Is that what pumpkins go for? $9 a pound? I feel like the pricing is different when I pass by the grocery store looking at those Halloween pumpkins that are already molding outside the store. Nine bucks a pound. Gosh, I wish I was worth nine dollars a pound. I'd be wealthy. Ginger still can't believe just how big his pumpkin got. To do it in Minnesota, it just shouldn't happen. It's like winning the Tour de France on a big wheel. You know, you just, you can only hope, but it worked. That one was for our TV technical producer, Bruce McLaren. It's like winning the Tour de France on a big wheel. I'm sure Bruce has thoughts about that. Ginger won the contest two years ago, but Guinness World Records says a grower in Italy holds the world record for the most gargantuan gourd at 1,225 kilograms. That is a whole lot of pie. Coming up after the show, coming up after the show, how about after the break? I'll have the regional news update and Brock Richardson will be your first sports chat. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown, back in the big chair on Tuesday, October the 11th, 2022. Coming up in the second hour of the show, Sonar Vision is an app that uses augmented reality for navigation. Nelson Rego will fill you in. And it's another edition of the weekly news quiz. Karen McGee will be here. Ryan Delahanty will be here. And Alex Smythe will also be here to be put to the test by yours truly. Got the questions in my left hand. Got my marker on the table. So score in real time and maybe not get ink all over myself. We'll see. We shall see. I gotta say, being the host of the news quiz, a lot less anxiety inducing than being a contestant. I never have to worry about winning and losing because I always win as the host. Everybody's a winner. Let's begin the hour with the regional news update. Starting in British Columbia, where RCMP say they're investigating racist graffiti discovered at a middle school in Kelowna as a hate crime. Officers responded to a report of the graffiti at Dr. Knox Middle School over the weekend. They found several racist remarks in spray paint, including swastikas and references to slurs against black and gay people. Constable Mike Della Paiora says investigators are working with the school to track down and identify those responsible. Moving over to the prairies, the head of Saskatchewan's RCMP says some victims of the James Smith Cree Nation stabbing massacre were killed because they were trying to save others. 
Assistant Commissioner Rhonda Blackmore reflected on their sacrifice. It certainly speaks to um, uh, heroic acts that were committed that morning, uh, for sure, by individuals at James Smith as they attempted to protect and to assist individuals there. Blackmore says suspect Miles Sanderson used a variety of weapons to kill 11 people. Over to Ontario, where a coroner's inquest begins this morning in Thunder Bay. The inquest will investigate the deaths of two Indigenous men while in police custody. Karen Rebo has more. 44-year-old Don Mamakwa died on August 3, 2014, and 50-year-old Roland McKay died July 20, 2017. Both men were arrested for suspicion of public intoxication and were being held at Thunder Bay Police Services headquarters when they lost vital signs. Neither man was assessed by a nurse or doctor, and both died from medical illness. The 17-day inquest will explore the circumstances of both deaths, as well as how racism, bias, and stereotyping may have been factors in first responders' interactions with them. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And then finishing in the Atlantic, a Charlottetown fire inspector is warning people to use their generators safely as power outages drag into a third week. Winston Bryan says about 25% of calls to his team that his team has responded to since Tropical Storm Fiona hit on September 24th were for carbon monoxide alarms. Brian says his department has found people operating the machines in garages or close to windows. He says generators should never be used in closed spaces like garages and they should be at least five feet away from the house and its windows. It's absolutely wild that we're into the third week of recovery for folks in PEI without power. Stunning with all the resources and all the people and all the things that we have available and knowledge that we have in Canada to not get power back on for folks is absolutely unacceptable. It's not like PEI is some remote place. There's a bridge. We're not, it's not the old days of only a ferry back and forth. You can drive anything into PEI across that bridge. If the bridge was destroyed by the hurricane, okay, sure, I understand. Come on, we're a first world country. Let's get that fixed up. And that's not my way of trying to diminish like what people in PEI in Newfoundland and Nova Scotia are feeling because certainly there was human catastrophe there. But this is what we talk about when we're discussing the impacts of climate change and a lack of resilience and preparedness from places all across the country, whether it's heat waves or mudslides in British Columbia, forest fires and wildfires in Ontario, tornadoes in Ontario, wildfires in Alberta, wildfires up north, hurricanes on the East Coast, We need to have plans in place here that don't leave people without power for three weeks. It's flat out unacceptable. Listen, I'm not trained in fixing the problem. You don't see me putting my hard hat on or my boots on or my gloves on and going and getting my hands on it. I'm not qualified. But there are people who allegedly are. Let's uh, put them in charge of these things. Because it seems right now the utility companies can't do it. By the way, I want to mention again, that's a private utility company in PEI who's uh, bungling this particular recovery because gosh knows the private sector is so good at everything can't trust the government got to trust the private sector as they bungle their way into a third week and putting the lights on back in pei and you'd say oh dave's cupping his ear for applause from the crowd the people at pei can't hear me i'm talking to you i'm talking to you out there in the rest of the country to think about when the next disaster comes your way okay let's lighten things up and bring in brock richardson for a sports chat (laughs) 
So we've been talking extensively about head injuries and the concussion protocol in the National Football League. So, Brock, let's start with a story here because you and I could try and lay out all the details here as to what the new protocol is, but I think it's better to let a reporter do it. So the NFL Players Association has revealed the new details on the league's modified concussion protocol, and Todd Ent will explain. The league and the players' union have put new guidelines in place, adding ataxia to the list of no-go symptoms when a player sustains an apparent head injury. In a statement, the NFL defined ataxia as abnormality of balance, stability, motor coordination, or dysfunctional speech caused by a neurological issue. So simply put, if a player has trouble walking, talking, or can't keep his balance after getting hit in the head, he will be pulled from the game. The NFL also concluded its investigation into Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavailoa's case, saying the league's concussion protocol was followed last month when he was put back into the game against the Buffalo Bills after an injury. Todd Ant, ABC News. I will say this. Uh, We can also relate everything that we just heard to also known as everything that took place with Tuatunga Biola in the game against Buffalo. He had no stability, no balance, no nothing. So sometimes situations like this uh, to see change require a situation to take place. And so for me, my first reaction when hearing this clip for the first time when I sent it over was this is all Captain Obvious. Like if somebody doesn't have balance or stability or any of that, they shouldn't be playing sports, let alone football. That's one. And then the second thing is, yeah, this is obvious to to people but a situation needs to sometimes take place for in order for there to be change and i think this is exactly what's taking place here we've seen a a situation in Tua where it's like okay this has happened he had no balance he was disoriented couldn't close his hand etc all of those things and so sometimes these things can bring good change and that's what i think's happened here Dave, I'm interested in your thoughts. There are always going to be head injuries in football. It's part of the barbarism of the sport. It's one of the things that makes the sport appealing. The thing that needs to change is the way we react to when these head injuries occur. And we've already seen this new protocol in effect on Sunday. The Miami Dolphins had their backup quarterback taken out of the game, Teddy Bridgewater, who sustained a hit to the head and was not allowed back in the game. So we're already seeing this protocol in place. You're right, Brock. A lot of this stuff seems Captain Obvious. It probably should have been on the books, spelled out explicitly like it is now, uh, back before in the day, because, again, I'm sure uh, neuro neurotrauma specialists would tell you, yeah, that that's the baseline stuff. How did you not have that as part of the policy? But a couple of years ago, our friend and contributor Megan Gilmore said, sometimes the key is to not question the timing of something. It's to question whether or not it's a good idea. The new protocol is a good idea. It already appears to be working. Let's hope the attention to detail continues as the league and the season move on. Let's hope that these things aren't like uh, the NHL when holding and hooking and tripping get called during the regular season and go away during the playoffs. Let's hope that come playoff time, when somebody gets their head scrambled, that we're not saying, well, it's a really important game. Get them back out there. Yeah, no, and and you're absolutely right. And I I think to your point about uh, about Megan Gilmore, she's absolutely right. It's it's not about when it's taken place. It's the fact that it has taken place. We can all sit here and say, well, it should have been here at the beginning. Like doctors are looking at it, going, you know, duh, kind of basically in a in a politically correct way. But the fact is, it's here now, and hopefully we see it continue. And I want to continue watching 
NFL with all the stars in it as much as possible. Injuries are going to happen. <laughs> but let's try to avoid the, the, the damaging injuries that could really change someone's life and career. So. You, you do get the flip side, though. There was the penalty in the Tampa Bay Atlanta Falcons game on Sunday afternoon in the fourth quarter when Tom Brady was tackled very gently. But then the defender, Grady Jarrett, sort of rolled over with Brady in his arms and actually quite an adorable little spooning motion <laughs> that was then yes. uh, that was then called a 15 yard penalty. So I, I also will still side with the cavemen and the meatheads from time to time and say you still have to allow a little bit of contact in the sports, even if it's a gentle spoon. Yeah, but that's this is the thing about sports, you know, whether whether people want to admit it, there is there is stature. And if things happen to certain people in sports, you'll see things called that you wouldn't see if it wasn't that person. And with it being Tom Brady, he might get a little extra, (laughs) a little extra help. You know, LeBron James in, in basketball, ask the Raptors how that's been in, in history, you know, all that. You see things called on players that you're like, eh, you wouldn't see that normally. So there is something to be said when you are somebody in sports, you do get a little bit of extra love, if you will. Greatness comes with its perks. There's no doubt about it. Brock, I don't know if Blue Jays have tongues, but Blue Jays fans are still licking their wounds after the blown lead on Saturday afternoon against the Seattle Mariners that knocked them out of the playoffs. Brock, I... I don't even really know where to start here with you, but what's your general feeling even 48 hours, more than we're, we're actually 60 hours after the end of that game? Well, I'm still licking my wounds and I'll give you a picture. I was in Toronto um, uh, with the filming, the end of the season of Family Feud Canada, and we were surprised when they put it up on the board and it was four to nothing at the time. And we left, you know, 20 minutes later and we, continued to watch it and all of a sudden it was you know uh eight to one and i'm thinking oh yeah this is a foregone conclusion yeah uh, not yeah. so fast <laughs> it's eight one uh, okay we're gonna get a game on sunday it's gonna be a deciding game who's gonna be the starting pitcher what are we gonna do and yeah mm. then the wheels fell off so let's start here let's start with there's been a lot of discussion around the questionable decision of removing kevin gosman with the bases loaded and going to Tim Meza. I'm not sure that that would have been my choice. Uh, but anyway, I digress. Um, 95 pitches only. I think I would have allowed him to get another out. I understand he gave up three hits in a row. I get all that. All well and good. I, I think uh, if we look at the... the catch that ended up scoring or the non-catch that ended up scoring the three runs. I think you could look at this in two ways. One, if Bobachet and George Springer did not collide and uh, Springer uh, did end up calling him off, I think even if that ball falls in, you're only scoring two runs. Uh, I think given the circumstances of Springer and Bo kind of falling onto each other and the ball rolling, that's kind of what caused that situation to happen. Um, it was kind of like a uh, all the potions were put in the exact right place and it mixed it all up and it was a disaster of a situation. I don't necessarily think that any of this will mean that John Schneider will not return as manager. I think he, when you have a record of uh, over 600 winning percentage, I think that earns you the right 
to to go back. I think that fans have been a little hard on the situation. I don't think when Bo gets to free agency, Dave, I don't think we're seeing uh, Bo come back. I, I think we've seen a lot of things with Bo that's good. We've seen 21 errors that isn't good. I'm a Bo guy, but there's a lot of people in Toronto who aren't. So in the situation of the weekend, we should have won that second game. We didn't, and we just have to move on and be better. And as a Toronto sports fan, I'm used to being seeing blown leads happen, <laughs> and it just becomes with the territory, to be honest with you. I'm, I'm beginning to feel terrible for my Toronto sports fans in my life. Uh, it's just it's just misery after misery after misery. Okay, you had a lot of thoughts there, Brock. I, I want to try and unpack them individually. The thought of the starting pitcher, Kevin Gossman, being taken out with the bases loaded at 95 pitches, I think that's a very baseball decision. That That's what you would do typically in a game. It's one of these things where he got himself in that situation. 95 pitches is right around the modern day total when pitchers start get taken out. I, I don't disagree with the removal of Kevin Gossman. I think it speaks to maybe what the Blue Jays have to do in the offseason, which is really bolster that, that bullpen. They were serviceable all year, but if you want to be elite, 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 you need to be like the Kansas City Royals in 2014 and 2015 and just trot out superstar relief pitchers. Seventh, eighth, and ninth, when that Royals team was rolling and won the World Series, you were not getting a hit in the seventh, eighth, or ninth inning. They basically had three closers going for them. That's number one. Number two, Bo Bichette was completely at fault for what happened with George Springer. The rules of baseball is the outfielder has the right of way. The outfielder calls the ball. You get the heck out of the way. And who knows what the long-term implications for the injury to George Springer are moving forward. He's he's a generally fragile player. And that that's one more lump on that body. And we really hope that he's uh, doing okay moving forward. In regards to John Schneider, the manager, I agree with you, Brock. This guy should be kept around. This team was spinning out of control when Charlie Montoyo got fired. And John Schneider had a great winning percentage. He's been with the organization for years. He has the respect of the players. Give him even better tools and free agency this summer. And I think this Blue Jays team could go a long way. So that's what I want to finish as a concluding thought here before we move on to other baseball, Brock. If you were in the GM chair or the president's chair, I'm making you Mark Shapiro. What are you doing this summer? I'm giving, first thing I'm doing is I'm giving John Snyder a, uh, uh, let's say three year, uh, two years with a third option. That's what I'm doing. And then I'm looking at the uh, bullpen, exactly what you said. I'm looking for the guys that are going to be your long relievers. I'm looking for guys who are going to be your middle relievers. And I'm looking for guys who are going to be your end of game. A lot of those end of games we have. We have uh, a lot of that. I love Adam Simber. I love Jordan Romano. We just need more guys that don't aren't timid in situations where the bases are loaded and two out in a playoff game in the Rogers Center. I'm also looking for another bat in the lineup. I'm looking for another uh, left-handed bat in the lineup. I think that that's what the Blue Jays need. They need another profile sort of guy who's there, who can be there, and complement Bo and Vladdy, etc. That is what I'm doing this offseason, and I think we need another starting pitcher for the Toronto Blue Jays because Yusei Kikuchi ain't my guy. We're not getting anything for Yusei Kikuchi. No one's taking him. Put him in the bullpen if you need to, but give me some more reliable starters. 
uh, down the stretch. That's yeah. what I'm doing. And Hinjin Ryu coming off surgery, I don't, I don't think that's going to be an option either. So, yeah, you, you need to go out there and get a better starting pitcher, a better bullpen. In terms of the bats, uh, our, our boss, Andy Frank, once described baseball power hitters as hairy forearmed muscle men. I think they need a hairy <laughs> forearmed muscle man and not in the Alejandro Kirk vibe. We need, you know, a true big muscle man banging out some of those balls. Brock, we're a little tight for time here. So, the rest of the baseball playoffs do indeed get underway today. Uh, we're in the divisional round. An incredible day with baseball starting at 1 p.m. Eastern time this afternoon. It's great. It's a buffet of baseball today. I am so excited. Of the four series, what's the one that stands out to you? I love the looks of the Atlanta-Philadelphia series. Oh, yeah. That, that is the series that I'm like... What is going to happen with this series? Atlanta has a really strong team. Uh, Philadelphia has a, you know, a, a strong team as well. But I would have to give the edge to Atlanta. I think that that series is going to be great. And contrary to everyone in Toronto and Canada, there is other baseball that's going to be good, <laughs> even with the Blue Jays out. I promise you, Dave and I are going to talk about it day after day because it's just going to be so much fun. But... Yes, that is the series to me that I'm that I'm looking forward to. The other one in the East is the Seattle, um, the Seattle um, series as well. I think that against Houston, that's a good series. I'd like to see what does Seattle do after winning that series, which some might say would be a little bit of an upset. Do you ride the wave? As athletes, we we ride the wave. Houston hasn't played meaningful baseball in a long, long time. What do they come out and do today? We'll see. They have a huge pitching staff that's really great. We'll see. Can Seattle match up? Time will only tell. Those are the two series that I'm really looking forward to. And I think just very quickly, the Dodgers' path has opened up even more with the Mets gone. Uh, I think they're pretty much a foregone conclusion to to make it to the World Series. But time will tell again. Uh, The game's not played on paper. It's played on the field. So we'll see. I uh, am definitely looking forward to that battle of California, even though a lot of those games are going to be going on after my bedtimes between the uh, Dodgers and the Padres. I've been part of that Friars club for a couple of years now. I'm, I'm loving my slam Diego Padres, but the Dodgers are a tough matchup. I just want to give a little bit of love to the Guardians and Yankees series. The Cleveland Guardians and New York Yankees also get started today. A Canadian pitcher on the mound for uh, the Cleveland Guardians, Cal Quantrill who's been really good all year. 15 and five was the record Uh, ERA of under 350. Really, really good player. Pride of Port Hope, Ontario. Brock, we spend a lot of time talking about the growth of Canadian soccer and Canadian basketball. We sometimes forget that the growth of Canadian baseball has been amazing in the last 10, 15 years. And the major league is littered with great Canadian players. Yes. And the guardians are this team that kind of goes to work and puts their hard hat on and says we're going to play baseball the right way. Obviously, the New York Yankees are the heavy, heavy favorites, but we'll see. Can the Guardians and uh, put it all together and do it? I'm leaning towards no, but it'll be fascinating to see what they end up doing. And yeah. with the Canadian pitcher getting the ball to start, that's pretty cool and Canadiana, of course. Yeah, and don't sleep on Stephen Kwan, the young sensation for the Cleveland Guardians, who had a remarkable year. He maybe, he maybe didn't have an Aaron Judge 62 home run year, you know, with all that pride of the Yankees business, but watch out for these Guardians. They're sneaky. They're sneaky. Hey, Brock, I, I keep saying, we're going to run out of time. We're going to run out of time, and I keep talking to you. I know a uh, production schedule is a little bit different for the neutral zone this week. What's coming up on the show? 
So today we're talking about uh, body shaming and shaming in general in sports. We're going to go back and revisit the uh, Alejandro Kirk and Alec Manoa, which is going to be a spinoff into things that we have struggled with uh, in sports as well, because I've struggled with shaming in different ways. So that will be a fascinating conversation. Plus, we will talk to Ari Shapiro, who is a publisher, podcaster, producer, and he's going to professionally, not me, professionally diagnose what the uh, Toronto Blue Jays have happened over the weekend so Love it. good conversation will be coming for that tuesday well. 11 a.m eastern time on ami audio and then it'll be up on the youtube page not long after that one the neutral zone with brock richardson and the rest of the crew hey brock thank you for this buddy we'll talk hockey tomorrow the nhl season is already underway with the games in europe last week and some games tonight but tomorrow it gets going in earnest we'll do a deep dive yes we will looking forward to it that is brock richardson he's the host of the neutral zone alex Smythe is here He's got the national weather updates. Here's your AMI national weather report from Environment Canada. Starting in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, it's mainly cloudy with a chance of rain today and wind gusts up to 50 kilometers per hour and 11 is the high. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's mainly sunny and a high of 13. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's mainly sunny as well, but the high is 15. In Quebec City, Quebec, mainly sunny as well, a high of 14, but there was a frost advisory in effect. In Toronto, Ontario, it's sunny and a high of 21. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it's sunny as well, and the high is 20. In Brandon, Manitoba, it's sunny, but turning to cloudy as the day goes on with possible rain in the afternoon and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, with the high being 17. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's mainly cloudy with showers expected this morning and wind gusts up to 70 kilometers per hour, so be sure to watch out for that. And 13 is the high. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it's cloudy, clearing this morning for sunshine and wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, with 16 being the high. Over in Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds and a high of 12. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds with clouds increasing as the day goes on and 10 is the high. Over in Kelowna, BC, it's sunny and 20 is the high there. And finally in Vancouver, BC, it's mainly sunny with a high of 18. That was your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Alex. We'll talk to you again in a couple of minutes, but coming up next, Nelson Rego will tell you about Sonar Vision, an app designed to offer more accessible navigation by using augmented reality. Nelson Rego is going to tell you how you can see like a submarine on Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. I've got a question for you. If you could be any kind of boat, what kind of boat would you be? If you were a submarine, you would use sonar to navigate your way around the depths of the ocean. Well, a new app is bringing the vision of the sea to you 
as a user. Let's bring in Nelson Rago of Cool Blind Tech to talk about this. Hey, good morning, Nelson. Hey, good morning, Dave. So, Nelson, let's start off with a story about two French engineering students who have developed an augmented reality app called Sonar Vision. We've heard of apps like this before, but how does this app rate differentiate itself from others? Yeah, so this one would be similar to uh, other apps like the, that do point of interest, um, like Blind Square or uh, Soundscape uh, from Microsoft. Uh, what separates this app from others, and, and you mentioned it a little bit, is that uh, it utilizes the camera on your phone, and then it takes uh, um, scans of your surrounding buildings that you're in, or, or that you're, you're out and about on the street, and uh, it uh, compares that to a database that Apple uh, would have of uh, pre-existing scans of that uh, of those buildings uh, in that particular city, and then it um, it uh, helps uh, with uh, geo tracking as uh, precise as anywhere from uh, one meter to I believe uh, uh, as 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 small as uh, 20 centimeters. Uh, so it's uh, it's an added feature uh, outside of the existing technology that you would have uh, for the other apps. But do I get to make submarine sounds as I do it as I'm walking around town? Can I can I pretend <laughs> yeah. to be a submarine? Uh, I, I suppose you could. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people will, will treat you a little bit differently walking around the city. <laughs> yeah, probably. Uh, I call myself Das Boot, Das Dave. Uh, Nelson, yeah. we've talked about the explosion of LiDAR technology, uh, especially with the release of Apple's recent crop of phones and the way that's been used for navigation reasons. Uh, are there any plans for an app like SonarVision to start applying some of that LiDAR tech? Uh, they, they've actually been uh, testing out um, the iPhone 12 Pro. That's the uh, earliest phone that uh, utilized uh, LiDAR technology. Um, and th- this is according to the company. They believe uh, uh, with that technology and a uh, prototype that they're uh, developed, that uh, they actually um, have uh, mentioned that uh, it will replace the, the cane. I, I know we've heard this before, but uh, uh, it is a, a bold uh, statement that, that they're making and uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, when they release the product. What do you make of that statement? We're going to be talking a little bit about this on the show tomorrow with the Marco Pasqua and Elizabeth Moeller about the rise of artificial artificial intelligence as a replacement for sound accessibility policy and the fundamentals of orientation and mobility. What do you make of a company like this saying, oh, yeah, this will be a replacement for the white cane? Uh, I mean, when you think of the technology, this this technology is being used on uh, on vehicles. So... When you when you uh, miniaturize it and and put it to uh, uh, you know for a person that's uh, using to navigate along the streets, uh, it, it is feasible that uh, lidar can be used uh, to navigate uh, throughout a city, um, but we we have yet to see an actual uh, fully developed product that actually does this uh, 100% of the time. So and that's the thing is that uh, you know we we, uh, we focus on a lot of on technology, but. Uh, uh, in my experience with technology, th- there's always that one point of failure uh, that happens. So you, you always want to rely on um, basically uh, your your development that you've been able to do for navigating around the city, yeah, um, and your skills. So, but it, this this is an added uh, cool feature that I, I would I'd love to test out. So if if those guys would like to reach out to me here in Canada, <laughs> I'd love to test this out. To me. 
and uh, be the, uh, the, the, I guess, the test dummy yeah, <laughs> to see yeah. how it works. I, I'm always a little uncomfortable anytime any tech company comes out and says, oh, yeah, this is going to replace accessibility yeah. tool X. There's a reason why the yeah. white cane has been in, in use for so long now within the community yes. because there's something fundamentally simple about it, right? Whether it's smart canes or I don't mean simple about the way in which you navigate with the white cane. I mean, there's a simplicity in the technology. There's no outages or batteries that run out. Exactly. It's a it's a tool that you can use. And so many times when we're talking about accessibility technology, that these things are, are, are marketed as replacements, they shouldn't be. They should be marketed as enhancements. Yeah, and, and that's what they're talking about, this app is, is an enhancement. Uh, but, uh, yeah, it's, it's a very bold statement to say. Uh, and I think it's part of marketing what these companies do to say that it will replace the, the cane because it, it puts that news flash out there and gets yeah. us talking about it. And then, you know, by by the time that uh, they roll it out and we're talking about it, uh, sometimes uh, those statements get rolled back a little bit. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a new company, and, and I, I, you know, I highly respect them for actually, uh, you know, getting into this uh, this side of things of, of actually maybe one day it'll, it'll replace uh, the cane one day. Maybe yeah. we'll have those Jordy LaForge uh, glasses <laughs> and uh, be able to get around. Yeah. Uh, Nelson, you mentioned that uh, there's still the testing going on here. You very uh, valiantly put yourself up there as being one of the guinea pigs. Is there any timeline about when this may actually be publicly available? Yeah, it's, it's currently tested in um, uh, right now in Paris, France, and they're actually expecting this to be uh, released, uh, the app itself, uh, to be released in uh, 2023. So uh, oh, wow. this time next year. Yeah. Okay. Uh, they, they didn't. They didn't say the release date of the the actual prototype that will so, supposedly replace the cane, uh, but the app itself uh, will be available next year. Nelson, let's finish here with your tech tip of the week. It feels like every week one of the major tech companies is like, "Oh, here's our new stuff. Here's our new stuff." So Google's yeah. now in that game with uh, some of their new features for the Pixel Seven in regards to selfies. They're trying to make uh, taking a selfie easier for a blind user. How are they doing that? Yeah, I, I I always thought Google had this feature, but uh, I, I keep getting mixed up because I'm always using an iPhone, I use a Pixel, so sometimes I mix up the features. But uh, uh, they just announced uh, recently when they when they released their uh, new Pixel phones, uh, the Pixel 7 and the, the rest of their uh, Pixel 7 line, uh, something called Guided Frame. And that allows uh, the user using uh, audio feedback and haptic technology uh, to actually uh, do a selfie. So, uh, for example... Um, there's a video that um, I think Molly Burke did on, on YouTube, uh, but it basically uses TalkBack and it'll guide you to move your camera up or down, left or right, uh, backward or forward, or even tilt it. And then once you're in that little sweet spot uh, where you center it in the frame, it'll automatically take the picture for you. Nelson, thank you for this. We appreciate it. Have yourself a nice day and we'll talk to you next week. Thank you very much. That's Nelson Rago of Cool Blinds Tech. Coming up after the break, we'll catch up with Nazreen and Ramia. Find out what's coming up on Kelly and Company this afternoon. And then I've got a question for them. How confrontational do you get with someone who is inconsiderate? I'm going to use that word, inconsiderate. Find out on Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. 
Let's bring in Nizreen Abdelmajid, Ramya Amuthan, and Alex Smythe to answer a quick question. Apparently no Ramya at all. That's fine. No problemo, no big deal. Just Nizreen and Alex on the line here. So first to say good morning to Nizreen. Hello, Nizreen. Good morning. Hope you're stuffed with uh, turkey. Uh, mostly mucus. Uh, Alex, good morning to you yet again. Yeah, good morning to you as well, Dave. That's a great visual picture. Thank yeah, you for that. Yeah, the, anybody having breakfast yeah. on the West Coast, you're super Lovely. welcome. You're super welcome <laughs> to hear about that one. Okay, guys, I got a quick question for you today. We don't have, we don't have a ton of time because we need to leave time for the quiz today. But here's the core question, and then I'll give you a little bit of background. The core question is, will you confront or call someone out for doing something inconsiderate? Here's the background. Someone broke a piece of gym equipment in my building's gym. No need for a full description here, but basically they bent the sliding pin in a set of adjustable dumbbells. The only way to do that is by being completely and totally careless. These pieces of equipment are designed to be used for life. Now, I didn't see them do it. I don't know who did it, but I've strongly considered writing a note and taping it above the dumbbells on the wall in the gym just so whoever did it can feel some modest shame. But I didn't, and I haven't, because I am a coward. Even indirectly, I'm a coward. But for real, Nazreen, are you able to muster up the courage to call someone out? I would not. I I mean, I watched people uh, do some things like that and were careless with equipment, whatever it is. But I don't have the courage to confront people. I have th- that's my biggest issue. I feel like I'm really bad at confronting with people. Yeah, but the note is good. I'm not going like, <laughs> to. I'm, I'm yeah. not going to. I'm not going to call you a coward because I can only call myself a coward. But no. I, I don't. I don't have it in me. I just don't. I'll I don't myself. like confrontation. Yeah, absolutely. And even when someone lies or or misplaces things and stuff like that, would you would you call them out for it? No, no, I would just accept yeah, it. I just, exactly. I, just, I just eat my losses. I eat my losses mm. and slink away with my tail between my leg and live to fight another day. Alex Smythe, what about you? Can you call someone out for doing something? Uh, I'm going to keep using the word inconsiderate. I, I, I had other words that I wanted to use about this, but Andrika Delanerol has told me never to use the word incompetent on air. So I'm not going to say incompetent, but inconsiderate. Right. Uh, yeah, you know, it really depends on the situation, I guess. And it also depends how I'm feeling on that day. There's there's oftentimes, you know, I'm like you, Dave. I don't like confrontation. I don't like conflict. I rather just avoid it and move on. But sometimes it just, you, you feel, you get frustrated, you get angry just want to say something and you know sometimes i i will and it it leads to a a full-blown thing but um i i guess it really comes down to the situation it comes down to what the actions are am i on my own are there others around me is it is are there inconsiderate actions directly impacting me in or is it just something that's happening kind of on the peripherals i think if it was something that directly impacts me i i probably am more likely to say something whereas it's like Okay, it's a piece of broken gym equipment. Doesn't directly impact me. I don't know who, oh, who would have it impacts done it. Me. 100... It impacts I, me. I, I know use it that impacts equipment. you. I know. I know. You you like to use the equipment, but you, there's other equipment you can use. I think that's how I rationalize it. But if incorrect. It's that's a direct... Incorrect. It's a small gym that doesn't have a lot of stuff. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. And I, that... You know, I, I'm not one to put up a sign like you, you were describing, but 
you know, in that situation, why not? I mean, you know, I if I were you, if, if it really bugs you that much, put that sign up, say it, and be like, <laughs> hey, look, someone broke it. This is this is for everyone. Take better care of it. Yeah, signed, fat, and wanting to do something about it. Uh, <laughs> Alex, I have a follow-up question here. Yeah. Strangers versus friends. Do you think someone you know more intimately, you're more willing to maybe take aside for a private convo? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, uh, especially if it's someone's doing something and it really bugs me, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely kind of mention it or, or call them out on it. It, it depends on, uh, like, how, how aggressive I'm going to be. If it, Usually if it's one of my good friends, oh, I have no problems calling them out directly <laughs> on it. Be like, what are you doing? Yeah. I, I have no problem calling them, uh, you know, an idiot or, or uh, incompetent as uh, Andrika uh, forbids us from doing it but if there's someone i know i i, I feel comfortable enough to do it stranger I, I i wanted a bit more kind of you know non-confrontational but sometimes yeah you you, you let your words fly and just yeah. uh, wait for the the consequences of it if it, with a stranger it's got to be egregious it's got to be beyond yeah. inconsiderate it needs yeah. to be like actually toxic and harmful for me to get involved nazreen strangers versus people you know does it change your approach Oh, I've confronted friends. I think that's a better approach than confronting strangers for me. Strangers, I like you said, it has to be big and harmful for me to actually approach the person. But friends, I, I can approach closely. Eliza Rocco, you wanted to offer a thought up on this in regards to uh, speaking up when somebody does something inconsiderate. Well, I... I, I speak up from time to time. I really do. It has to be a situation where it's something that really bothers me, but I do confront the person. My best example and the thing that really, really bothers me is when people are butting in line. Oh, oh, oh my God. Oh, yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was in mm -hmm. line for a, a Johnny, not Johnny, John Mulaney comedy uh, thing really fun um at the Scotiabank a couple weeks ago and the amount of people who tried the button line in front of me it, it was it was horrendous and I didn't let a single one of them fly I told them where the line started which was way way behind me because yeah. I was standing in that line for a good 40 minutes way to stand your ground oh, Eliza oh my goodness I I had to there comes to a point and I get uh I did it nicely but the, the, there was a lot of people doing it. So, um. uh, yeah, yeah, that's well said. Eliza, thank you for this. Nazreen, thank you for your thoughts as well. Alex, you hang out because you'll be joining us for the weekly news quiz in a couple of minutes. That is Alex, Nazreen, and Eliza, as mentioned, no rum yet today on a vacation day. So I don't know what's coming up on Kelly and Company, so it doesn't matter. Coming up next, we have another edition of the weekly news quiz. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI. It's Tuesday. It's the last segment of the show. That means it's time for the weekly news quiz. That's right. And the perpetually evolving wheel of contestants are here to play beginning with the east coast of Canada, Atlantic Canada, we can live beside the ocean with Ryan Delahanty in Halifax. Good morning, Ryan. Thanks for having me back. And of course, not to be confused with Burlington, Vermont, 
This ain't Lake Champlain. It's Lake Ontario and Alex Smythe. Um, I'm ready to uh, to put up or shut up, Dave. And when it comes to bodies of water, there's nothing like the St. Lawrence River and Morrisburg, Ontario, where you can find Karen McGee. Have I scared everybody away? Uh, your, your your prowess, your your intelligence and prowess uh, yeah, concerns we'll us all. We're, we'll we're all too cowardly. <laughs> I just became the host of the quiz to get away from uh, Karen's big brain. For those of you who may have never listened or watched a weekly news quiz before, let me give you a quick rundown of the rules. We have three rounds of questions, three questions per round. Each question comes with three multiple choice options. If you answer the question without hearing the options, you get two points. If you answer while hearing the options and get it right, you get one point. And if you get it wrong, we keep on moving till a point is awarded. The order of contestants and questions were written down by Paul Daniel. And the order is Ryan, Karen, and Alex. So question one, going to Ryan. Ryan, which Republican Senate nominee denied paying for his girlfriend's abortion in 2009? I'll take the options. Most of them, but I'll take the options. (laughs) Is it Mehmet Oz, Herschel Walker, or Blake Masters? Let's go with Herschel. That is correct. Walker's son, Christian, a right-wing TikTok influencer, has denounced his father's campaign and says Herschel Walker displayed a lack of family values. Great running back, maybe not the best politician. Let's uh, jump over to question number two, which goes to Karen McGee. Citizens in which country voted in a polarizing presidential election between Jair Bolsonaro and former president Luis Inacio Lula da Silva? I'm going to take a shot and say it was Italy. That is incorrect. Uh, heading over oh. to Alex, do you want options or do you want to take a crack no, at this? No, it is Brazil, Dave. It is Brazil. Oh, Lula received the most votes but did not reach the 50% threshold needed to avoid a runoff vote against his rival. Alex, on the board with two points just like that. So I'm going to mark that down on my sheet, and we had one point for Ryan. Sorry, I'm keeping score in real time here, guys. I'm doing my best. Question number three, going to Alex. Which African country was the location of a second military coup in 2022? Oh, jeez. I, I don't remember hearing about this one. Can I get the options, please? Was it Burundi? Was it Botswana? Or was it Burkina Faso? I'm going to say Burundi. That is incorrect. Ryan, an opportunity for the tie here. Let's go with option C. Burkina Faso is correct. The year of 2022, the year of the coup. The second coup ousted interim president Paul-Henri Damiba, who had come into power in the first coup in January. Just a couple of coups to keep you busy. After round one, we've got a tie atop the scoreboard. Ryan with two, Alex with two, and Karen with zippy de doo But Karen gets the first question of round number two. Karen, which celebrity has agreed to pay a $1.26 million penalty from the SEC for promoting a cryptocurrency without disclosing that she had paid for the promotion? Had that been paid be for the promotion. Kim Karda- that would be Kim Kardashian. That is correct. Kim K having a... Expensive year with the Kanye divorce. Kardashian thought adding the hashtag ad in her Instagram posting was sufficient. The SEC disagreed. 
Alex, coming to you for question number two of this round. What American writer authored a touching letter that will soon be up for auction to his teenage son in 1958, offering fatherly advice on romance? Oh, I have no idea. I don't need those options, Dave. A couple uh, real heavyweights of American literature here in these options. John Steinbeck, Ernest Hemingway, or Carl Sandburg? I'll say Steinbeck. That is correct. That is correct. In the two-page letter dated November the 10th, that's my birthday, 1958. That's not my birthday. The Nobel Laureate Prize Laureate, Literature Prize Laureate, told his son, if you are in love, that's a good thing. That's about the best thing that can happen to anyone. Don't let anyone make it small or light to you. It's kind of touching and beautiful, and if I'd read that properly, it would have been even better. Let's head to question number three of round number two, going over to Ryan. It was a tough week for Andrea Skinner as she resigned as a board chair from what Canadian organization? That would be Hockey Canada. Yeah, that was kind of an easy one there. That was a layup, if you will. A tap-in, <laughs> a tap-in to use hockey parlance. Skinner resigned as a director and interim board chair of Hockey Canada days after a controversial parliamentary committee meeting where she defended Hockey Canada's handling of group sexual assault allegations involving past junior players. Okay, round number three. Before we begin, let me give you a scoreboard update here. We have Ryan with four, Karen with two, Alex with three. Anybody's game with three questions left on the board, but the first crack in round number three goes to Alex. If Alex was a volcano, we'd call him Krakatoa. <laughs> Alex, Canada's Catherine Beauchemin-Pinard earned a silver medal in the World Championship competition last weekend. What was the sport that she won the silver medal? Judo. Woo! Alex, throw, oh, yeah. Alex throwing down here. We're going to call that a coca as Alex <laughs> scores some big points there. The 28-year-old from Montreal, who was a bronze medalist in last summer's Olympics in Tokyo, lost to Japan's Mogami Horikawa in the women's 63-kilogram final in Uz- Uzbekistan. Alex, how'd you know that? Or is this, is this from your time uh, I, of covering her sport? Saw, I saw that on the news. I was kind of following it, and I was like, oh, okay. You know, I was, I was starting to think, okay, maybe I should uh, check out if there was a pair of judo competitions coming up as well. So on the weekend news feed, I saw it. It paid off. Yeah, you and I have both had the privilege of interviewing Priscilla Gagne, Paralympian, a bunch of times uh, for some of her judo competition. Always a big supporter of Pr- Priscilla and the work that she does. So super cool to be following uh, judo there. And I think what I said, Koka, that's actually the lowest forming. Uh, that's the lowest form of judo scoring. It's like the least amount of points you can get. So that shows yeah. you my lack of judo knowledge. Even though <laughs> I was a yellow belt, I, I, I won a competition in grade six, but there was no weight limit at the time. And I weighed like 160 pounds in grade six. And uh had a little bit of an advantage. That's why we have weight Doesn't class. matter, Dave. You won. That's yeah. all that matters. <laughs> Ryan, big question for you here with question number two of round number three is you're now one point behind Alex. <laughs> a judge dismissed charges against seven people for their role in a water scandal in which Michigan city where tens of thousands of people were exposed to lead. Ooh, so many. Uh, I'm going to roll the dice. I feel like this is wrong, but... Uh... So all I remember with water in Michigan is Flint. That is correct. That is oh, correct. That was a layup that, question. There have been a couple layup questions uh, handed like you out the here. Guest the, you give the guests the nice questions, I protest. Well, Karen, Definitely protest. you're a little out of the mix here, but you can still play spoiler. In 2014, Flint managers began using the Flint River to save money, but the corrosive qualities of the river water caused lead to leach off old pipes. 
By the way, people forget about this. There was a huge study about lead in Canadian water uh, in like late 2019, earlier early 2020, and then the plague hit, and we kind of lost interest. But like half of Canada's cities also have unacceptable amounts of lead in the drinking water. Just you know, FYI, happy thought on a Tuesday. Uh, wait, who got that right? Ryan, Ryan got that right, and I, gave you, and I gave you two points, which now gives you a one-point lead heading into the last question of round number three, which goes to Karen. So Karen can really mess around with the results here if she so desires. <laughs> Karen, this relic, stained with gravy from the Beatles' 1966 U.S. tour, was recently discovered and is worth up to $25,000 for auction. What is it? Stained with gravy. With gravy. I must have been in town. I'm going to take a guess and say a napkin. That is incorrect. So, Alex, you have an opportunity Ooh. here to go for yeah. two and win the whole thing or go for one and get a tie. Uh, I'm going to get the options and go for a tie. So your options are now tablecloth or pillowcases. I feel like, you know, it's going to be an odd one and I'm going to say pillowcases. That is incorrect. Oh. Ryan gets Ryan. the gets the default point. Default. Default. <laughs> default. Default. The greatest two Pillow words. Man. The greatest two words in the English language. According, according to Homer Simpson. Why would pillowcases be an option if it wasn't right? I mean, why would you put that? <laughs> well, I mean, it it feels like it should be off the board. I mean, napkin is too obvious, and then it's the tablecloth. So pillowcase? Hey, I, I mean, maybe it's from John Lennon sleeping. You can't eat something with gravy in bed. That's like the more fundamental rule of life. Even if you're a rock star, gravy must be ate at a table or over the sink like a rat. The <laughs> local eating establishment in San Francisco provided the food for the band to eat prior to their last U.S. concert at Candlestick Park in August. The tablecloth feature is a sketch by John Lennon, Ringo Starr, George Harrison, signed their names while Paul McCartney is spelled out in bubble letters near the words the tablecloth also features sketched portraits by folk singer joan baez who joined the band for dinner now that is a fun one with that the winner is the young man in the sea it's ryan delahanty Thank you very much. I'm honored. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity here. <laughs> we love it when we love it when our special guest chair picks up the big W. Ryan, congratulations. Thank you. I'm Al sorry, Karen. Alex, a good effort. A good effort by you. Thank you. At least I, I uh, was in front of Karen, so that's all that matters in my mind. Sometimes beating Karen is the number one goal really? of the news quiz. Karen, <laughs> no time for a rebuttal. We're going to run out of time, but you have yourself a nice day. Thank you. <laughs> I think Karen's going to skip next week's quiz as protest. I am. <laughs> unrelated, I unrelated am. protest. Okay, we got to go. Ryan, Alex, Ryan, bye, everybody. Got to get out of here. See you tomorrow. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Whoop. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join me every couple weeks for the Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther podcast, where we learn about outdoor tech and tips. Plus, we look at news affecting the environment. AMI's Outdoors with Lawrence Gunther is available from your favorite podcast provider.